entrepreneurship is not a gender neutral concept. Women face more barriers to entry. Access to markets uh, is more difficult. People don't take you seriously to give you a big job. Banks put so many more stipulations on women in relation to having collateral. There are distinct differences in how men and women experience and apply entrepreneurship. And there isn't enough cognizance taken by the various institutions that support them. Hello, and welcome to the Pathway to Impact podcast series. My name is Madeline Arkins, Project Officer at UIN and your host for today. Join us for a conversation with Yoga Veli Nambiar, social change strategist and founder of Niara Advisory for a conversation on social entrepreneurship, inclusion, and higher education. We talk about the nuances in entrepreneurship education, the need for personalized approaches, the challenges women face in entrepreneurship and how to adopt entrepreneurial thinking to avoid shallow solutions. Over the next 30 minutes, we will be discussing all things social entrepreneurship, how to make it more inclusive and what role higher education can play in that effort. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Yoga Veli Nambiar on this very topic. Uh, Yogi, in an abbreviation of her many accolades, is a social change strategist. Prior to her entrepreneurial ventures, she has a history of working in human rights and the disability sectors in India. She is the founder of Niara Advisory, where she designs interventions for nonprofits and social enterprises with a special focus on entrepreneurship development and gender equity. She serves on many boards, was previously the CEO of the Alan Gray Orbis Foundation and the founding director of the Entrepreneurship Development Academy at Gibbs, the Gordon Institute of Business Science at the University of Pretoria, where she led the school's entrepreneurship efforts. I'm sure much of that background we are going to take a look at in our conversation today, but Yogi, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Hi, everyone, and thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Yogi, for those who are unfamiliar, the Philistines who are unfamiliar with your work, how did you find yourself in the entrepreneurship or indeed social entrepreneurship space? What led you to this work? So at the turn of the century, that's that gives you an indication of how old I am. But at the turn of the century, I was working in the women's human rights space in India. So I'm South African. I'd gone through to India for a, a holiday and I saw the huge inequality there. It was quite striking to me, having grown up in a in a, a township in South Africa where everyone like lived in the same way as me. So I didn't probably understand that I was part of the inequality or experiencing it. But I went to India and I was in my uh, mid-20s and I wanted to solve all the problems of India. I thought in my idealistic state, I would go there and sort everything out. And so I went to do human women's human rights work, basically. And I found that women who had been trafficked into prostitution, who I was trying to help, when we were trying to mainstream them, they struggled to get access to the economy after that and would often revert to prostitution or in other uh, circumstances where they'd be exploited. And they couldn't get jobs, as I mentioned, because of the stigma of what they were doing, the fact that they didn't have formal job experience and because they didn't have the confidence and the belief that they could handle a job. 
And so entrepreneurship became the answer. I didn't know that it was called that then. It was just something I was helping them do to create small businesses and just help carve a space for them in society. It, it helped them find a way to bring value to society while creating economic access for themselves. And the most significant impact was how it brought them self-agency, a feeling that they can add value, that they were worth uh, something, that they could solve a problem for others, and that others then looked up to them for solving that, that problem. And so I realized that approach of entrepreneurial thinking was something that could be applied in different ways. And as I started researching it, I found out that if it's applied to solve social challenges, that it is called social entrepreneurship. And I used that approach in the next role as I headed up a, an organization for people with disabilities and using those fundamental principles of sustainability, of innovation, of income diversification. And all of that became the, the, the stepping stone to really applying learning and teaching about social entrepreneurship. It, it was the start of how I got into it by very practically doing it uh, on the ground myself. Mm. And, and from there, as I said, that was in the early 2000s. And I went on then to become an entrepreneur myself. I ran two businesses. I ran a social enterprise. I was the country director for the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Women Initiative, working with women entrepreneurs, and then created the Entrepreneurship Development Academy because I wanted other entrepreneurs to learn from my mistakes, basically, and my failures. And I think creating entrepreneurship is one of the big joys in the world because it really helps people to think differently. That's a bit of the journey. Nice. No, and I think that perspective that entrepreneurship can also be for some groups empowerment and provide yeah. some sense yeah. of self-agency, as you said, and dignity is a very unique uh, perspective and not one that you actually hear when people advocate for entrepreneurship. Yeah, because obviously there are the priorities of creating jobs. There's the priority of economic access, as I mentioned, making money. Mm. So because those are so urgent, we tend to overlook what it really does for you as a person, what it does for your place in society. What does it mean to shift your, almost like your psychology to being one of, I'm not just a, a taker, I'm a giver and people see me differently because of it. Yeah, and what that does for your personhood. Uh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Obviously, entrepreneurship education is something you're particularly well-versed in, having been the founding director of the Entrepreneurship mm -hmm. Development Academy. I wanted to know what, in your view, is maybe the state of entrepreneurship education currently? What is going right and where do you think yeah. you can improve? Yeah, I think firstly, for me, it's like it's really important to know that entrepreneurship education is even more critical now than it was even in the 80s and 90s where it was really getting momentum with all the technological advancements and the disruptions that take place with acronyms like VUCA, the 
volatility, the uncertainty, the complexity, the ambiguity of the world. An entrepreneurial lens is critical to every, I was going to say every young person, but to every person, because you need to be able to look in the midst of chaos at a situation, an environment, a context, and be able to see how can I add value? What are the problems that exist? And how can I create a solution? Because that's essentially what entrepreneurs do, right? That's what entrepreneurial thinking is about. Because if you're not solving a problem for someone or uh, helping meet a need or finding an opportunity that just brings value to someone's life, you don't have anything to sell, so to speak. You're, you're not really an entrepreneur. You might be doing an, a hobby, but no one else will care. So entrepreneurial thinking is about finding that essence of how you can add value and so I think that's why we need to ensure as many people as possible are able to learn what are those entrepreneurial competencies and how can I apply it? Because all this time we've been fed the story that these entrepreneurs are these people that uh, like they're just born like that and, and we could never be that. And like Steve Jobs was just, he was born that way. Mark Zuckerberg, these unicorns are held up as the example, but actually entrepreneurial thinking is available to all of us. It's just that we are in schools or institutions of higher learning, et cetera, that may not always teach us in that way. They, that may not be the narrative. The schooling system is set on that industrial era time of how do we teach you these specific like things and it's almost like factory like and we're training you to be an employee perhaps yeah. a good employee but an employee nonetheless so i think now there is a recognition of how critical it is that there are all these disruptions during covid for example lots of innovations have come out young people coming up with cheap and user-friendly testing kits for example created by young people in university I think there's a greater recognition. Universities are doing a better job than the schooling system in terms of entrepreneurship education. I uh, would differentiate between two streams of entrepreneurship education, though. On the one side, perhaps people who are taught and who learn in the primary and secondary education sector, so schools and universities and all of that. And definitely there, there's a growing realization that entrepreneurial learning in some form needs to be integrated. And there are more initiatives from a policy perspective. I'm in Rwanda right now. There's an entrepreneurship development policy that the government has here. There are countries like Malaysia that integrate it into their schooling system. South Africa has an effort underway from the Department of Basic Education to integrate it. So I, I definitely feel that there's there's more attention, there's more effort happening on there. There are pockets of excellence where this is done in a really interesting and in innovative ways, especially in the US and Europe. I think there's some really interesting initiatives uh, that, that are happening in Denmark, in, in the UK, in Babson College in the US, etc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think what I see happening is universities wanting to concentrate on that high impact entrepreneur, the one who will become a unicorn. 
Mm -hmm. And they're called unicorns for a reason. <laughs> so I think people need to just calm down about unicorns. But there are many more gazelles and zebras and other <laughs> and others out there that need to be nurtured. So I think if I had to say what is going wrong is that sort of focus on wanting to create those specific high impact entrepreneurs, those unicorns, those, yeah. and sometimes to the detriment of others who could create really good businesses. And maybe they're not with such a high valuation as, as uh, a unicorn. The other thing I would say, maybe two other things that I think are not going as well, and especially within the few schools that integrate entrepreneurship education, is that it's looked at as a subject. It's like something else, like that you're learning maths, you're learning physics, you learn entrepreneurship education. And often, like in South Africa, it's integrated into another subject called life orientation. And so they have these market days and stuff for kids, but it, it's it's so deep in the curriculum, you need mm. like a, a torch and a spade or something to go and find it. And I think what is missing is looking at entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial thinking as a lens on the world. So you could be studying engineering, how can you be entrepreneurial? You could be studying medicine. How can you be entrepreneurial there? You could be in the public sector. What does it mean to apply entrepreneurial thinking there? So yeah. it is something that is universally applicable because it's a type and approach of thinking. And if you look at studies that show what the entrepreneurial competencies are, it's very much about curiosity, opportunity recognition, but it's a growth mindset, it's problem solving, it's action orientation. Those are things that can be applied across the board. So for me, it's a concern that we currently look at it as a subject and we try to put it into a neat little box. And then the last thing I would say on the what's going wrong is an insufficient focus on teacher training. Yeah. You've got teachers who came out of that same education system as I'll say I did because from the education sector doesn't have huge um, disruptions. So we essentially still have the sage on the stage. We've got like rote learning. We've got formulaic type yeah. learning. Now teachers are suddenly being told, now you need to teach entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial thinking. But how do you do that if you yourself have not been exposed or haven't been an entrepreneur? So I think those are the things that I would say need to be sorted out. And then lastly, that second stream of entrepreneurship is for entrepreneurs that are outside of your university or schooling system. Mm -hmm. And that's how you then start creating access for others who were not privileged enough to get into an academic institution. So how do you take that learning, package it in a way that is customized to people that face a different context? Because there are more organizations coming up that's doing that and universities that are doing that, it shows a maturation of the sector. It shows that, you know, that there is a recognition that more people need to be exposed to entrepreneurship education. And if you haven't been lucky enough to make it into a university or college or a school, a good school, et cetera, that you could still find a way to, to get this kind of education.
Yeah, the teacher training point in particular is not something that I think is really touched on, but it makes so much sense. Mm. And why would we be yeah. teaching a subject and a line of thinking that seems so incongruous with the yes. way that things have been taught up until this point? On what what you brought up yourself, Yogi, is about bringing in people who may not have had access, number one, to higher mm. education, into entrepreneurship education and the general theme today is democratization of education, which I know you had previously said was the, the great equalizer. Could you say more about that? Is there anything from your perspective that higher education can do to better support and include yeah. others in this entrepreneurship education? Yeah, I think, and, and this is maybe just to put this together with why I created the Entrepreneurship Development Academy was exactly for that reason, was about how do we eliminate or at the very least reduce some of the barriers to business school education for marginalized entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs from underserved and disadvantaged communities. And so the kind of three barriers that I looked at, one was affordability, business schools as, or even university education, the fees are exorbitant for many people. And so they're left out of that system. Often there isn't public funding for them. So the first barrier I reduced by getting scholarship-based education for these entrepreneurs. We uh, are lucky to have a system in South Africa that encourages corporations, so business uh, firms, to uh, support the development of uh, entrepreneurs and small businesses. Mm. So I ensured that we had scholarships for every entrepreneur that wanted to study at this business school, because often they now have started the business based on their own hunger to survive, but to do something interesting and valuable, but they can't afford to study. So, you know, it was fully uh, sponsored. The other barrier is geographic location. So I wanted to ensure that no matter whether they sat in the, the richest square mile in Africa, being Santon in Johannesburg, or if they were sitting in a rural village but could just about get to an internet cafe, that yeah. they would have access. And so we created hybrid programs. We created in-person where we moved around. We made the education mobile, basically, and took it to where people were rather than expecting people to just come to us. Yeah. And then the third barrier, often to business school education or this even university education, is prior education, so your education level. And these marginalized entrepreneurs did not have a high level of education. And so we would be further perpetuating that inequality by saying you didn't have a proper education before, so you couldn't get into university. So now we're going to further not give you more education that you no. need to add value to society. So we totally scrapped the education level requirement. And so people who who just got into high school were sitting next to people with master's degrees or whatever, and we were customizing their experience in class. So I feel that higher education institutions have a huge role to play to not further, as I said, perpetuate inequality, that you could better support to fostering entrepreneurship by being able to create platforms 
that bring people from your communities that may not have had the privileges that you've had, you, you should firstly make sure that your own students are able to properly engage with the materials. For example, the content and methodology, the tools you use, are they accessible? Are they practical from a language perspective? Do they work for all? It's just about not looking at people as a homogenous group. Mm. How do you create more nuanced and customized programs? And they don't have to be hugely expensive. It's, it's like mass personalization. You work with a group, but still ensure the experience is personal enough that they find value. And then outside your institution, as I mentioned, creating customized programs that link with corporations and governments as a bridge Make sure that it links into a whole system of support, mm. creating access to markets and finance, et cetera. So you really have to understand how the community entrepreneurs are feeding into a system and how the system is keeping them unequal in order to democratize your program and not say, listen, we're creating a standard program. You must come and fit in or not. So I think that's important. It's a great stance, I think, to take from a higher education institute, say we are going to attempt to rectify and not further widen the gap in education inequality, which widens in situations as easily as when in primary schooling, when children go back and maybe don't pick up a book for all of their summer exactly. holidays. We have a few more minutes left. And before we drop off, I would love to ask you about your experience specifically in women in entrepreneurship. You were country director of the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Women Initiative. And mm -hmm. from your work in this initiative, as well as many other women in entrepreneurship is a real pillar in your career. What have you seen are the main barriers for entry in entrepreneurship for women? Because we've seen time and time again that this gender disparity is not letting up. Yeah, this is a topic that could go on for days. And I've seen it now over decades and still some of the same issues like persist. So I think firstly, we need to understand that a one size fits all approach doesn't work. Entrepreneurship is not a gender neutral concept. There are distinct differences in how men and women experience and apply entrepreneurship. And there isn't enough cognizance taken by the various institutions that support them, whether from an education and training perspective, whether it's as a customer or client, whether it is as a venture capitalist, uh, for example. We need to understand those nuances. So some of that is that women face more barriers to entry. It's difficult enough from an education perspective. So you've got entrenched biases that you're already dealing with as you come out of the education system and into work. And from an entrepreneurial perspective, that is then further enhanced by the gender inequities, by gender stigmas, by lack of role models. Access to markets uh, is more mm -hmm. difficult. People don't take you seriously to give you a big job where you have to manufacture. But you might be able to manufacture, let's say, in a food product like uh, 10 kgs, 50 kgs of this. But now if I've got, I'm looking at hundreds, thousands of kgs of a certain product, I don't know if I can trust this woman because I, don't, I can't take her seriously. Banks put so many more uh, stipulations on women 
in relation to having collateral in order to be financed versus the percentage of men who are asked to produce collateral. A study in the US showed that even venture capitalists, and I imagine this would be the same in many countries, but VCs ask uh, men about growth opportunities. So they ask them about the upside. Women get asked about how they'll manage the potential risks. So they get asked about the downside because there is an inherent fear with this venture capitalist that I don't know if this woman is going to be able to handle this. Whereas men, the kind of questions they get are much more innovative. It's growth potential. It's we've taken it for granted that you will manage the risks. We'll ask a few questions, but really we are excited about how you grow this. So the barriers that women face are much more layered. They're much more nuanced. I've had women in studies that I've done in townships in South Africa, which are like informal settlements and areas that people were put into during the apartheid um, regime. Yeah. I've had women who still live in those areas tell me that they've started a business that's going well, but to grow it, to really scale it, they need to hand it over to a man because they've never seen a woman run a successful business. So that shows the importance of having role models and to be able to present a particular picture that women can relate to. So I think to fully understand that context and to design programs that support women from where they are, that is really important. It must be practical. It must link them into social capital because women often don't have the networks to build their businesses. And we must examine our own biases as well. Yeah. As we create programs, when we look at it, do we look at a cookie cutter approach. Oh, a man, a woman should all be able to do this thing. But we're not looking at, but what about their context, their background, their skills, their exposure? It's different. And how do we take account of that? Yeah, I know. This is that question, as you said, you could spend years. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it's great to see in, in initiatives like the 10,000 Women and in your other work on this topic, there certainly has been a drive in that mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and for that for that we can be grateful. Yes, absolutely. Um, maybe then to, to wrap this up, we can we can check out this question from Despina. So she says, thank you for sharing so thoughtfully, Yoga Valley. I have a question that I'd be interested. Adopting entrepreneurial thinking as a lens to the world, as you mentioned, entails chiseling critical thinking and problem solving with the pitfall of sometimes opting for a solutionist approach. How do you see the perspective of taking time to understand the current issues and not urging the development of shallow solutions that only superficially mm. solve the underlying challenges? That's an amazing question and one that um, I'm sure when I disconnect that I'm going to be thinking about further myself because that is true. And I think as human beings and, and people that often we're told to be real, to be practical. So you want to like skip to the solution very quickly. And I think this is, besides entrepreneurial thinking, I think this is general thinking in our lives as we often want to rush to the solution. And I think exactly the person asking the question mentioned, it is important to spend time doing that initial uh, research. It's important to be able to really dive deeply into understanding, like if you're going to be a social entrepreneur and you're looking to get involved in responding to issues around water scarcity and you want mm -hmm. to look at various solutions, 
it is really important that you spend time trying to understand what is out there, mapping out like a landscape, understanding the depth of why this is an issue, what's fed into it. Because if you don't, you'll create a solution that either somebody else has already tried and it didn't work and it would have been easy for you to save the effort and just have learned from that. Mm. The second thing is that you would often utilize resources in a wasteful manner or a, a, a non-innovative manner because you haven't actually taken the time to understand it. You haven't taken time to understand how it fits within the system. So uh, this is, I sound like a broken record, but it's important to know what feeds an issue and what that issue feeds within a system in order to know if the solution you're coming up with is one that is actually sustainable, is it impactful, is it efficient, et cetera. And so I, I've gone through the years of having people come to me with what they think is a really innovative solution. And I just mentioned to them, oh, have you thought about this substitute that already exists to do that very thing? Yeah. And no, they haven't because they haven't taken the time. They just thought something was cool. Nobody else um, does. And so their solution falls apart. So the one part is research. The other part, I just want to say, experimentation, testing, prototyping, etc., is a really important part as well to uncover whether it is actually a shallow solution or not. If you can spend time really testing things, I know it's now become a cliche, but failing forward, I think that is really important. And universities, colleges, schools, etc., are nice, safe spaces for young people to fail forward, trying different solutions, etc. Talk to a couple of people, create, craft out like a beachhead market, which is a market that has all those characteristics of the market you want to bring your solution to and see whether it takes, whether it creates value. And then you know whether to move forward with it or not. But I think it's that's really important. The pre-work and then the during work of experimentation and then constant like the monitoring, evaluation, the iteration, et cetera, that, that goes with it. That cycle, and I'm doing it as an entrepreneur now, I'm still going through that cycle, sometimes on a weekly basis. And that's how I ensure that my solution is actually creating value out there. Great. That was a very informative and practical answer to give an applied insight into what this all might be in practice so thanks Yogi and thank you yeah. for your question we are out of time however although I feel like we could have very much easily done double time Yogi so thanks <laughs> I know there's so much to go through with this and it's really interesting in terms of the solutions that can be created but also the role and responsibility each of us have in democratizing this entrepreneurial thinking, because that's, I often say, nothing changes if nothing changes. So that's if we don't change what we're doing and how we're doing it, nothing is going to change in the world. And we're going to be facing the same issues even long after we're gone. People are going to be facing those issues. So I think now's the time to fundamentally shift the system. Absolutely. The master's tools will not dismantle the master's house, as we know. Yogi, thanks so much. This was a, a great chat. Yeah. And I hope all of our audience enjoyed. Yogi, where can people find you if they want to touch base? 
I think LinkedIn is probably the best. So yeah, connect me there. I'm really, I try to be good with responding to my messages on the LinkedIn inbox. So definitely reach out to me there. Good intentions is all you need. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much again, Yogi. And thank you everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the discussion. Follow UIN on LinkedIn. And if you're enjoying our podcasts, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find this content too.